Welcome to the 237th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I speak with historian and podcast host, Chris White, about COVID in Appalachia. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live, Twitch, and Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, March 10th, 2021, there are 2,615,348 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center in the United States. The report is 528,652 deaths as of today. In West Virginia, the toll is 2,330. And in the United Kingdom, COVID-19 has claimed 124,987 lives. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, more Appalachians are dying from deaths of despair, and COVID-19 is making it worse. This was published January 28, 2021 by Taylor Sisk and appeared in 100daysinappalachia.com. In 2015, Princeton economists Angus Deaton and Ann Case reported research results that took most everyone by surprise. Death rates for middle-aged white Americans were rising. The causes they found were suicide, alcohol-related liver disease, and drug overdose, what they termed deaths of despair. Only HIV-AIDS in contemporary times has done anything like this, Deaton said at the time. The results of subsequent research indicate the extent to which Appalachia has suffered such deaths. In November of last year, the Appalachian Regional Commission released a report titled Appalachian Diseases of Despair, from research conducted by the Walsh Center for Rural Health Analysis at the University of Chicago and the Center for Rural Health Research at East Tennessee State University. The researchers found that between 2012 and 2017, the overall mortality rate throughout the whole of Appalachia climbed by almost 10%, while in the rest of the country it increased by just under 6%. This rise, the authors note, coincided with the surge in opioid overdose deaths and it further widened the gap between the mortality rate within Appalachia and elsewhere, following a decade-plus period in which overall mortality had declined outside Appalachia but increased within the region. In 2017 and 2018, the U.S. experienced a decline in drug overdose deaths, and the overall mortality rates declined in both Appalachia and beyond. But Michael might the Center for Rural Health Research is his director, their director of research and programs, warns that the COVID-19 pandemic places those encouraging trends in peril. In a December article for the Journal of Appalachian Health titled Rural Appalachia, Battling the Intersection of Two Crises, COVID-19 and Substance Use Disorders, 
Wright and his co-authors write that data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention indicates that drug overdose mortality rates are rising nationally, and that anecdotally, partners in Appalachia attribute those most recent trends to the impact of COVID-19. Other researchers have warned that nationwide, more than 150,000 lives could be lost to drug and alcohol misuse and suicide during the pandemic. Until 2018, Wright said, the country hadn't experienced a decline in overdose mortality in many years. But we know from the early release data that overdose rates went back up in 2019, and now we suspect they're going up dramatically because of COVID-19 in 2020. We must redouble our efforts to address the despair, Mike said. The Appalachian Disease of Despair report is built on 2018 CDC mortality data. The authors write that in 2015, drug overdose death rates in Appalachia were almost two-thirds higher than the national average driven largely by opioid use, and that while the rates had declined by 2018, they remained almost 50% higher in Appalachia than elsewhere. Among individuals between the ages of 25 and 54, considered the working age population, the diseases of despair mortality rate was 43% higher in Appalachia than beyond. The burden was greatest among those age 35 to 44. In Appalachia, for all diseases of despair, West Virginia and Appalachian, Maryland had the highest mortality rates. The rate in Southern Appalachia was approximately half that of North to Central Appalachia. Among the findings Mike found most stunning was that between 25 and 20, 2015 and 2017, suicide rates in Appalachia rose 50% relative to the rest of the nation. And now this must be placed into the context of a pandemic. The intersection of COVID-19 and substance use disorders, Mike and his co-authors of the article write that people living with substance abuse are at increased risk for both exposure to and poor outcomes from the virus. They're more likely to experience homelessness and incarceration, making physical distancing difficult or impossible. Risks associated with substance abuse include poverty, housing, and food insecurity, lack of access to health care, and complex chronic conditions, all of which complicate proper screening and treatment for COVID-19, the authors write. Further, chronic use of high-dose do- high opioids restricts breathing, which can lead to chronic respiratory disease, increasing the risk for COVID-19 morbidity and mortality. Todd Davis is the director of the Marshall Clinical Research Center at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia. Among the center's objectives is building an addiction science research network throughout central Appalachia. Davis attests to a storied tradition of strong social structures in the region in which he lives and works and to prove and to the proof that such structures bolster resistance to diseases of despair. Often though, he said, Geographic barriers mandate that those structures, supportive as they may be, are limited to extended family. Decades of economic decline in the region and the proliferation of opioids and methamphetamines have chipped away at those structures. As jobs are lost and economies crumble, many of those who can get out do, and families are further destabilized. Those traditional social systems that have helped ward off despair, Davis said, are now often in fact a cause of despair because the family has become unstable. We know that economic distress correlates strongly with substance use disorder and suicide and alcoholic liver disease, Mike said. Then comes a pandemic. People are even more isolated. They're unable to access in-person treatment services to advance their recovery, and this exacerbates a lot of the existing challenges. 
Michael Haney, director of PROACT, an addiction care and treatment center, also in Huntington, is a firm believer in author Johan Hari's assertion that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, but connection. Early in the pandemic, PROACT suspended its in-person group sessions and began offering as much help as possible via telehealth. Clients were largely receptive to the online services, Haney said, but not everyone has access to a computer or phone. Others simply need more engagement. Stuck at home, they halt their routines, sleeping, grooming, checking in with friends. You're talking about addiction, Haney said. Those are a lot of the trigger points for relapse. If you're miserable, you start looking for a way out of that misery. You don't always do your best thinking when you're at your worst. Isolation deepens. Haney said he and his colleagues are now seeing a rise in positive drug tests and more indications of depression. We were starting to see more people struggling than we had previously. So at, one, at that point, we started on a case-by-case -case basis, opening things up a little bit for in-person care. We've known about the social determinants of health for years, Dr. Might said. We know that the greater, greatest in predictor of poor health, physical substance use disorder, behavioral health issues, we know that the greatest predictor is poverty. So just as it's important to think about telehealth solutions, behavioral health solutions, medication-assisted treatments, it's also important to think about economic development solutions. Meanwhile, Might stressed the people of his region must continue to lean on those social structures that remain sturdy, lean into a culture of caring for one another, he said. And right now, he urged, the way that we do that is by masking and distancing. It's not going to be forever, but right now, this is how we show our compassion for one another, which is absolutely consistent with our culture. Okay, I'm going to turn to our conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest, Chris White. I've really been looking forward to this discussion and previewing his podcast in advance of our conversation. Chris White is professor of Latin American history at Marshall University. He's the author of The War on Drugs in the Americas, Creating a Third World, Mexico, Cuba, and the United States during the Castro era, as well as the history of El Salvador and a global history of the developing world. He's also recently written a textbook on the war on drugs. He's a former Marine and his research specializes in drugs and epidemics. And he also hosts this year, starting this year, the podcast COVID in Appalachia with Chris White. Chris, thanks for making time to join me today on COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott. I'm glad to be here. Let me start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. I'm calling from West Virginia. I'm actually kind of in a rural part of West Virginia, and uh, I teach at Marshall University, which is kind of the most urban area, along with Charleston, uh, which is the capital. And so basically the COVID situation here has been similar to other parts of Appalachia, where you can say Appalachia, Appalachia, um, and uh, in the sense that it took a while before it actually hit most of the rural areas out here. West Virginia was actually the last state to have a positive COVID case. And we were kind of thumping our chests, proud about that for a long time. And then all of a sudden we started getting them, but they really, it trickled in. It was really gradual and uh, for a long time, in fact, but nursing homes started to get hit pretty bad. And, uh, but as long as it was kind of isolated there, then it wasn't that much in the news. People were taking a lot of precautions. Our governor actually stepped forward early in the game and shut things down. 
and we went to online, you know, March 13th was the last day that I've been in, I was in class last year, just like a lot of people in the country. And then uh, start of school last year in September, the cases were real low in our county, three for every 100,000 citizens, new cases every day. So it seemed like it was pretty safe, but we were still being very cautious, only going to school two days a week. Everything else was online. And then we had a major peak right after Christmas. And uh, and then the first of the year, it went, it shot way up to we had the highest rates in the country all of a sudden. And it's been steadily declining since then. But, um, you know, overall, I think we're a little bit under the national average in terms of the death rates and the case rates right now. But uh, but there have been times when that hasn't been the case. And what's the situation on campus then? Uh, you know, universities have tried many, many different strategies to uh, address this, either closing entirely or part way or opening and trying to manage infection on campus. What's been the approach there at Marshall? Well, as you, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar uh, in living, uh, working in a university atmosphere, uh, a lot of times the faculty and the staff complain about the universities and the administration and things like that. And I just can't because our university has actually tackled this from the very beginning. I actually got a chance to interview uh, the two people who are in charge of the uh, basically the COVID mitigation efforts on campus, and they've got their own website to, to come monitor all of this. They're involved in testing, quarantining, contact tracing, vaccinations. And so in this, on December 11th, we actually got a message that all faculty and staff, whoever wants to get both shots of Moderna, will be able to get it by March. And we got it, you know, and I'm only 46 years old and I had both of my shots already. So I think our, our campus has done a, a great job. And really, right when somebody is test positive or even suspects that they're tested positive, they have an isolation method. They actually have their own dormitory for people who are, are being quarantined on campus. And so we have an incredibly lower rate of infection, actually, of, of positive cases, that is, uh, by comparison to the state average. That's pretty fascinating about the, well, it, and good. I'm glad to hear that. And and um, at Drexel University, where I was working until um, earlier this year, um, they were, you know, the, the problem was trying to keep up with the information demand. Of course, people want to know what's going to be happening 12 months out, nine months, six months, as, as well they should. And they made some hard decisions there uh, about keeping closed. And, um, you know, with the financial implications and the pedagogical implications of that, but Philadelphia being as it is, you know, Drexel being an urban university to bring the students back is really, you know, they don't live in isolation. They're part of the wider community. I say that as a, a thinking about what you said about uh, vaccination. So Marshall actually stewarded the idea of vaccinating anybody in the university community. Is that right? Well, staff and faculty. So the students, that, that's not something that, as far as I know, is on the agenda yet. Uh, but uh, because a lot of them also live in their own separate counties, most of them are actually from the state of West Virginia. But uh, we also, since we're on the border with Kentucky and, and Ohio, then we get people in the tri-state area, the Ohio River Valley. Uh, but uh, so, so not everybody would necessarily uh, be contacted by our county's public health. That's, that's who's actually managing it. And so... Uh, so Marshall, yeah, they, I mean, I, I didn't think I was going to get a shot through my employment, but I did. Yeah. They, and they managed all the shots on campus. The implications of that for the wider community are, are quite fascinating. 
and yeah. you know, thinking about the, the positive implications of that for the wider community are, are pretty interesting. I want to, I have a lot of questions for you. Um, first of all, just want to see if you would define, and it may be hard to define, and this is not a trick question, um, the boundaries of Appalachia, and I, and I realize I say it like a person who's not from there also, so I'll try sure. to correct myself. I guess if I said that there in West Virginia, they'd spot me immediately no, as no. an outsider. What, is, no, what it, are some of the boundaries of it regionally and culturally? So that's a great question. And it's it's really something that um, is loosely defined. And, I, you know, you mentioned uh, that someone might uh, kind of, uh, you know, be insulted or whatever. Um, I was actually in Arkansas and a, a friend of mine was down there with another person who wasn't from there. And that per- and that person referred to Arkansas as part of Appalachia and the person who was from Arkansas, from Little Rock, she said, we're not part of Appalachia, we're in the South, you know? But so, you know, people really do care about being associated with that identity. Whereas in West Virginia, people don't usually call this the South, but nobody would be offended if you did. Uh, And the term Appalachia is uh, actually, it's been defined in certain ways, specifically by the Appalachian Regional Commission, and that includes 420 counties. And so if, you, if there was a concrete definition anywhere, it's with them. And, and, and this extends to 13 states from northeast Mississippi and northern Alabama, northern Georgia, South Carolina, part of South Carolina, South Carolina that is like the western edge of states like South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, and then the eastern portion of uh, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee, and most of Pennsylvania, some of uh, some of New York State, and all of West Virginia. So our state is actually the only one that's entirely within that, technically what's called the Appalachian Regional Commission. And, and that's for a reason, because really they're trying to look at this, especially the area that was affected the most by things like coal, extractive industries, mm-hmm. and that are in the Appalachian Mountain Range, technically, but uh, but have also you know not benefited so much. And there are technically places within the this uh, this uh, commission area that are doing much better than others. But on average, the people who live in that area, um, due to the nature of the extractive industries really around the time of the Gilded Age uh, that came about, like coal and timber, um, then it's been very difficult for people to extract themselves from or extricate themselves, I guess, uh, and move into the more technologically um, advanced age, even though we have, you know, obviously everything here that other uh, advanced uh, cities have. It's just that the disparities in wealth are, are kind of similar to what you might see in developing countries in, mm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. So it has this geographical definition and then it has this sort of social geographical definition related to the kind of industry that has gone on there and then the economic impact of that over time. And culturally speaking, and I ask this because it's relevant to your podcast, which we'll turn to in a few minutes. Culturally speaking, um, I'm from Texas originally. And, you know, to say you're from Texas is it means something but it's only an invitation to a further question about where in Texas are you from? Um, and that will have a strong defining force on what sort of culture you grew up in and what co- sort of culture you participated in. So I grew up in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex area, um, which has a very unique special culture compared to people who grew up in the Hill Country region in the central part of the state, for example. Culturally speaking, if you can generalize, what should we associate with Appalachia? 
Well, <clears throat> yeah, culturally speaking, it's really this kind of struggle between uh, traditionalism and modernism, I would say. The, uh, you know, we have obviously all of the technological advances, uh, strange to even say that, but I know that I had some misconceptions before I came here, you know, uh, but there's also a, a deep rooted sense of history and the land here that people still have that I find fascinating. Uh, people don't always, I mean, West Virginians and East Kentuckians and Southeast Ohioans, you know, they refer to themselves as from those states, right? Ohioans, East Kentuckians, whatever, or, uh, or West Virginians. But at the same time, people are born oftentimes in a, an area that they call a holler or a hollow, which is, which is kind of where I live too, where, you know, it's just like this meandering Creek that feeds into a major river and the people have lived there for a couple of generations in a lot of cases, or even more than that. And so they associate themselves with that, that space between a variety of hills of different heights and, uh, and little rivers too. And so people oftentimes will, will talk about, well, I'm from uh, from this county, if they meet somebody else from from another part of West Virginia, they'll say, "I'm from Cabell County, or I'm from Kanawha County, or I'm from Monongahela County," as opposed to uh, the town that they're from. If they're from Huntington or Charleston or Morgantown, then that's actually rare by comparison to the people who are from these little towns that nobody that most people probably haven't heard of. So they just refer to themselves as from a county. Growing up in California, that was really unheard of, um, unless I guess unless someone came from a rural county in California, of which there are many. Uh, I grew up in the Bay Area, and so I would just say that I was from San Francisco, even though I was from a town nearby San Francisco, right? So I'd refer right. to the, the, the big city. You know what I'm talking about, Dallas-Fort sure. Worth. There's tons of little suburbs around there, right? Sure, if sure. you were from Burleson, where would you say you were from? Fort Worth, right? Maybe. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. I, I, was, I have a cousin who lives in that area, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, thanks for that sort of geography finder to to start out, and I think it's it's relevant. It's been sort of underexplored, I think, a little bit. It, it's part of the problem the way the COVID reporting works. It's sort of global, and then it's national, and maybe it's subnational to the state level. But what we found throughout the pandemic was that regional identity really mattered in terms of how people addressed governmentally, how how the pandemic has been addressed, but also culturally, how people have dealt with it and what kind of predisposition predisposition they had to the to the pandemic. Just want to remind everybody that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with Chris White, historian and podcaster about COVID-19 in Appalachia. Chris, let me just ask you um, first a little bit about your uh, about your work. You work on Latin American history, you work on drugs and drug policy and the war on drugs, and we were chatting just a little bit uh, before the podcast started about even uh, the sort of strangeness of the concept of the war on, on drugs. And you know, the, the, the marshalling, at least rhetorically, the marshalling of great force to address uh, a social ill. I'm curious how you see all of that work now in light of this pandemic. 
You know, it's funny. Um, I know you're asking me about the drug war, but I always go to the topic of 9-11 and your book talks about 9-11 in the beginning too, right? Because I'm always reminded that uh, the FBI had about eight Arabic speakers out of 20,000 agents on the lead up to 9-11. But also, as uh, Ted Galen Carpenter pointed out uh, in, in one of his books, you know, we dedicated so many resources, hundreds of billions of dollars to the, the war on drugs, even as Al Qaeda was building up its resources and we had hardly anybody focusing on them. The, the, the two guys who made it into the country in January 2000, they knew who they were, but they lost their trail and just stopped trying. And so just imagine in that case, if we had actually spent hundreds of billions of dollars training Arabic speakers, trying to prevent terrorism, hunting down those leads instead of arresting people for pot. And so I, that's how it kind of I think about it with the war on drugs, too, because we've been focusing the number one arrest in this country in the past uh, 50 years, really since the 1970s, has been for marijuana possession. So that means. That means that police have had options for all kinds of other crimes to pursue. And uh, it's not actually their option. It's politicians who make these laws, right, for them to enforce. It's different in these states where they've legalized marijuana, for example. Totally different now. But they've, they've had all these options, bills on the tables. You know, we can stop uh, dom domestic violence. We could have SWAT teams to go after rapists if we wanted to, to put the fear of God into sexual assaulters. But instead, they've chosen to do this, to put this money into fighting drugs. And we could have used that money for pandemic preparedness. Michael, Michael Osterholm has been saying this for 40 years, practically, that we need to be, and so many other public health experts have too, put the money into pandemic preparedness to contact tracing, but also surveillance, right? Wouldn't that be amazing if they would have actually had a global viral surveillance system in place so that things like COVID, when they pop up, then we can isolate it. But they don't have a system like that in place. Instead, they're focused on drugs. Let me just follow up on that, because I really like the way you're framing. This is a disaster preparedness issue, which has trade-offs. And I think too often, because we see disasters as these sort of exogenous events that happen to us and with, with little prelude, um, then we don't spend the time necessary thinking about the policy trade-offs in the days, weeks, months, or usually years or decades leading up. And I think that's how you, that's how you framed this. I know it's, it's um, a vast area of research, but maybe you could just tell us a, a little bit about the, the moments where there were options to veer away from that way of thinking about drug policy and to embrace some of these other possibilities for, as you said, pandemic preparedness being one of them. I mean, that's a real policy choice that wasn't made. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting, the more I read about the history of drug policy, the more I realize that Yes, there are those moments when it's just kind of been political pressure, like when Len Bias died and when uh, Kiki Camarena, the DEA agent, was killed in 85 in Mexico. That kind of thing, That that there's a lot of anger associated with that and political pressure, too, uh, to clamor for, uh, to fight drugs. But also there have been times 
in the early 1900s when people were actually abusing pharmaceuticals, which were completely legal, and they had been for a long time. And so you had these well-meaning people of religious background, medical background as well, and they got together and they had these conferences, international conferences, as well as uh, discussions in uh, the U.S. Congress to try and say, well, we got to have some kind of controls on this. And so they didn't foresee the problems later on, though. They decided to pass the Harrison Act in 1914, which is basically the road towards prescription-only drugs. And so they actually thought they could prevent the knowledge about making drugs from being from being used uh, outside of the pharmaceutical industry. But they also thought that they could stop people from uh, selling drugs on the, on the open market that they got from their doctors, that they, they assumed that doctors and pharmacists would all be completely moral human beings. And, you know, it just became completely um, uh, unstoppable. But then you also have Harry Anslinger, who was the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and he also was our representative for drug control at the United Nations. And he led an international effort in the 1940s through the 50s, early 60s, to try and control drugs. One of the things that he did was to persuade the Peruvian dictator, uh, Manuel Odria, to, to restrict the uh, production of coca leaves and cocaine to stop all cocaine production in the pharmaceutical industry in Peru, which was run by German immigrants mostly, so that only the United States could buy coca leaves, raw coca leaves from Peru, which was their biggest export. And then that would go to two companies, Coca-Cola and Merck. And so Coca-Cola got to produce the coca extract which was decocainized, and then the cocaine that came from those leaves, that went over to Merck, and they still have the patent on cocaine hydrochloride, which is used as kind of a, a numbing agent in dental and eye surgeries, things like that. So those are the only legal industries where you're able to use coca leaves. And But people still have been growing coca leaves for a long time, and they know how to turn into cocaine. So they could have made a decision back then, I think, too, to look another way. But Anslinger was so dedicated towards squashing drug use. He was uh, he was so fervent against that for certain people, I should say. You know, he applied it differently to different people. There, there's a few other uh, we can look at too, if you want. Sure. Well, that, I mean, what a fascinating history. And then, of course, also the way you're describing it, this idea that um, you know, as we get up a little later into the '80s, certainly this war on drugs mentality. Of course, what is happening is that the seeds of the opioid addiction crisis are, are looming too. Yeah. And that is, you know, the article I read at the top of the show today, this uh, diseases of despair approach, which zeroes in on Appalachia within the United States. It's not the only region that's been suffering, but it's been suffering mightily from that. And I wonder, you know, we talked a little bit about the kind of, um, long-term economic pain of the region, which seems to have manifested itself in this opioid addiction issue. You know, asking about this as an outsider, I might have certain questions I would ask, but how do people talk about that issue there? Well, yeah, that's a, man, it's, it's so complicated and important because it's not something that people want to really accept that maybe the economic foundations of the states, especially places like West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky that were dependent on coal um, to an extent, uh, Pennsylvania with steel and uh, and even some of the other states with uh, with coal and railroads and things like that, that, that the things that actually brought us modernization 
if you will, in this region are actually the things that have harmed us as well. You know, and it's difficult to say, well, we shouldn't have had those things because who knows what would have happened otherwise. Um, but, you know, for a long time, uh, there was really, you know, people would kind of squat on the land out here and they could farm and they could hunt and gather and they lived very sparsely. And then because they didn't really technically own the land, then at you know the late 1800s, that's when you start to see timber and coal coming in and railroads come in and they're able to take this land. And then the people who used to farm and you know hunt and fish and things like that, now they don't have their own land and they have to work in these coal camps. And of course, it actually brought a lot of prosperity to a lot of people, but there's also a tremendous amount of pollution. And so, you know, really the, it's hard to change the economic foundation of a lot of these uh, regions when, you know, now they're starting to go away. Coal has been going away for a long time, for example, but it's also uh, very difficult to change because our brand is kind of tarnished by this, you know, uh, these uh, you know, high tech industries, they don't, that actually, that aren't involved in polluting that might actually be able to uplift our society here. You know, the kinds of things that they have, like, you know, the Twitter and the Facebooks and the Googles that are out on the, on the West coast, those types of companies aren't going to want to come as much to Appalachia because we're, we have this bad brand that's associated with extractive industries and lots of uh, morbidity, mortality, high, uh, you know, drug abuse rates, things like that. And so it's very offensive to a lot of people here who's, whose parents and grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents going back six generations have always been in coal, you know, or in timber to say to them, well, it's actually those industries that have caused a lot of problems here, or at least have contributed to them. And, uh, and to say, well, you should try and do something else, you know, and there, that, I think that goes back to that traditional mentality too, because there is something beautiful about traditional societies as, uh, as you may know, I mean, I, you know, I've lived in a lot of areas that I would call more traditional societies, like in Mexico and in El Salvador, where people take their time and they, uh, and nobody's a stranger and, uh, and they spend time with family and friends. You don't have to mm -hmm. call ahead of time. You can just show up at someone's house and they'll feed you and, and, and keep you over for the night. Right. I've been treated so kindly by traditional societies uh, ever since I was uh, 16 years old when I first lived in Mexico. And mm -hmm. so in West Virginia, and in Southeast, Southeast Ohio, where I've spent a lot of my time the past uh, 25 years, ever since I got married to my wife, who's from the Athens, Ohio region, then uh, I, I, can't, I, I can't accept the version of this region that a lot of people outside of the region, like people in California might think, right? That, mm -hmm. oh, well, it's backwards. It's just hillbilly elegy. But even if you look at hillbilly elegy, it's all about that, those family connections, right? Mm -hmm. The, the, uh, the main character, he, he decides that he has to race, he has to drive through the middle of the night to save his mom and then drives all the way back, even though he has an important job interview. He's been waiting for this forever, but he knows that his top priority is his family. And there's something beautiful about that in this area that, it, that makes it hard for people to just accept, oh, we should just change because they're afraid they're going to lose that. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Chris White today historian and podcaster on COVID calls. And I want to turn now, um, Chris, to the work you've been doing with the, with the podcast. I'm so impressed. I have so many colleagues all around the world right now who hold down the day job of the teaching and their ordinary scholarship and have added on additional work uh, being creating archives or community outreach or activism or whatever it is. In your case, it's the COVID in Appalachia podcast with Chris White. 
tell me the origin story, how you started it. Uh, tell us a little bit about the themes that attracted you to it. Why did you want to host these conversations? So um, I actually would go back to my drug research here because so much of what I found doing research on drug overdoses is that there are just about, there's, I found 300 different types of drugs that were, have been found by medical examiners in the bloodstreams of people who died in West Virginia in the past 20 years, 300. And so heroin is just one of them and Oxycontin's another, and there's all these others that I'd never even heard of before. And the more and more you look at it, you realize that this is something that is really part of the pharmaceutical industry. And then when COVID hit, I started looking into how I was reminded of a lot of things I'd read about drugs in the past in my research and uh, historical research, which is that these drugs a lot oftentimes are being marketed to treat cough and pain and fever and diarrhea. And so it's just a, this catch-all. And it's been portrayed here, though, as something that's been prescribed by doctors who are corrupt, corrupt doctors who just want to make a buck and corrupt pharmaceutical companies and their distributors, Purdue Pharma, Cardinal Health. You know, they're just making billions of dollars off of the off of the uh, off of the, the addiction of Appalachians. But this pandemics aspect, when COVID came along, I started thinking, wait a minute, maybe a lot of these, because I've seen records of a lot of people who have died of epidemics here in the past, like diphtheria and influenza and pneumonia and measles. And I started thinking, wow, maybe there's actually some kind of a connection here that people have actually been using drugs for a long time in this region and other parts of the world because they've actually helped them to deal with the symptoms of epidemics. And sure enough, if you look into the archives um, at the state archives, and also if you look at uh, the NIH too has all kinds of full text <laughs> journals and and books going back to the 1700s uh, that uh, that show how much things like alcohol and opium and synthetic opioids have been used. They've been prescribed and recommended, in fact, by physicians for hundreds of years to treat these types of diseases. So, so that kind of you know the the drug overdose epidemic. It's been called an epidemic here. That led me into looking at the war on drugs. And then that made me look into the connection between drugs and pandemics. And then I thought, we need to have a book on Appalachian epidemics, an interdisciplinary book on that. So a coworker and I, co colleague and I, uh, put this, uh, put an anthology of authors together and we're working on it right now. It's going to come out with Kentucky, uh, uh, University of Kentucky next year. And um, and so that's kind of what got my interest going with uh, with COVID, the broader context of it. And then at the turn of the, the beginning of the year, I noticed that we had the highest rates of COVID infection in the country all of a sudden. And I looked to the news and it wasn't being covered anywhere. It, all we all the only coverage we had was on our highest vaccination rates. West Virginia was getting this great press because we had the highest new uh, you know vaccination vaccination rates in the country. And so I started calling around to news organizations and nobody was covering it. But one organization, the local one, uh, they said, hold on, uh, why don't you come on in a few days from now and you can talk to us about this. And so I thought, oh, I better prepare. So I decided to over prepare by developing a podcast. I thought if I did the research in the next three days so that I could be good enough to host my own podcast, then I wouldn't look like a fool on that on uh, regional television. So that's kind of what became the incentive for it, because the news organization 
uh, was kind of talked to me like, oh, you care enough about this. You must know something <laughs> about it. And so uh, by the time I had gone on television, then I'd already hosted my first podcast. And uh, and then that's really how it all started. I'm glad you did the over preparation. And I bet you discovered, as I have discovered in, in very similar ways, preparing to talk to a journalist or sort of a news spot. I don't know how much time they gave you, but usually, you know, you, you prepare what could take six hours to run through everything that you've learned and ready to say. And, and they give you eight minutes if you're lucky or something like that. There's just not enough. And this is one of the reasons I do COVID calls. I actually think the national and local news media have done very impressive things um, with the pandemic reporting. But local local media particularly has just been decimated in the last 20 years. I mean, it just yeah. basically doesn't exist. And there may still be newspapers of longstanding um, or television stations, radio stations of longstanding, but they might have one reporter now or two. And, um, you know, this pandemic, I think it, it has called for the kind of work that you're doing to provide a longer space for discussion with people who might have been 25 years ago the subject of a of a profile or a longer piece in local news media, but they just don't have the bandwidth to do it. So the way you're describing it um, seems like you're fitting in that space a little bit. Can you talk about how you choose your your guests and your topics? Yeah, and and I should say too um, to clarify the of course the the news stations in West Virginia uh, and the governor's office have done a great job of communicating as well as the public health has uh, departments have communicating information about COVID. It was their lack of coverage of what I thought was a should be a news story, which was the big spike in new cases, and uh, and I was like, oh, we got to advertise this a lot, and so then. Um, and that's what led to, to me doing that. And yeah, and they gave me about eight minutes and I was actually happy about that on that program. So, you know, initially I started thinking I wanted to have just people in the medical profession. And so I got in touch with doctors and nurses and uh, public health professionals from the region. And I was just thinking about West Virginia. And then I started uh, the, the first physician I talked to actually uh, brought up food and diabetes. And he said in, in his hospital up in northern West Virginia, that most, if not all of the people who were on ventilators in the hospital had these comorbidities like uh, that related to food consumption, really. So then I started thinking, wow, I need to really talk to, talk to people who are involved in nutrition as well as um, as as well as exercise, lifestyle behaviors, too, because what if. COVID would have been much lower in Appalachia and other parts too, if we actually had less of these food deserts and food swamps, you know, maybe a hundred years ago before the invention of fast food and high fructose corn syrup and things like that, maybe it wouldn't have been as bad back then if COVID would have hit, you know, around the time of the Spanish flu. And so then I started to branch out more and, and, uh, and I've, I've spoken to uh, to people who, uh, for example, are in uh, Eastern Tennessee, who you were referring to, the same authors actually uh, that uh, meet, for example, um, uh, I interviewed him a couple weeks ago. And then also I spoke to an African-American woman from the, Af uh, leader from the African-American community about the kind of special uh, problems going on in the African-American community and how that's related to past racism too. And now I'm starting to branch out. Actually, tomorrow I'm going to have my first Spanish uh, language podcast with uh, a, a leader from the North Wilkesboro community in uh, North Carolina who has uh, a dual Spanish and English congregation. He actually is an assistant to a priest at the church down there. 
because West Virginia or because Appalachia's only growing demographic group is Hispanics. So African Americans and whites are not growing in numbers, but Hispanics in the region are. So uh, because I, I'm a Latin America specialist and spent a lot of time in in Latin American countries and speak Spanish, I thought, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have some Spanish language podcasts from now on. So you're gonna do that. That's great. So you're gonna do the entire episode in in Spanish. Yeah. That's tremendous. I, say a little bit more about the kinds of moments you have in the in the podcast episodes where you're learning, because yeah. I, I, I also you know there's this sense that and you know I was just talking about this a minute ago that the history professor is supposed to know everything from the Roman Empire forward. We got our names and dates right, um, but I'd speak for myself again. I do this as a as a mode of learning. And I'm learning, even in our conversation today, I've already expanded my knowledge of the region. What kind of things are you learning and doing these discussions? Oh, yeah, this is great. I mean, and this is I, I was anticipating this when I when I got the the message from the the news station. I thought, OK, this is an opportunity for me to learn even more. The past year, I've been reading everything I can get my hands on about pandemic history and even some things about, uh, you know, kind of popular histories, I guess, or made for popular audiences about virology. But to talk to an actual virologist and to have the time, an hour and a half of his time has just been great. People specializing in, in this uh, microbiologists and virologists like Rich Condit, who is an emeritus professor from University of Florida, living in Austin actually right now. And he's on the uh, This Week in Virology podcast three times a week. He's agreed to be on the show twice to talk to us about things like mRNA, r not the variations between uh, DNA and RNA viruses and uh, differences in uh, case fatality rates and why those are. Uh, just being able to learn from him personally. I mean, this is like uh, like graduate school as if you were the only student in class in the seminar, you know, <laughs> and uh, and not having to share this person's knowledge with anybody else. So, uh, you know, it, it's been a privilege talking to Rich Condit. I also had the privilege of talking to Mohammed Zaman, who's been referred, referenced many times for his book, uh, Biography of Resistance, about antibiotic resistance. And, uh, you know, I've really I've just gone down this list of, of the running bibliography that I have of the books that I've read in the past year about pandemics. And I just I get in touch with all the authors and just ask them if they're willing to be on the show. And maybe one out of every four has said, sure. So, uh, so I'm reading, you know, uh, interviewing people who are New York Times bestsellers and, <laughs> and uh, being able to, you know, incentivizes me to reread their books and then to ask them uh, more informed questions than I otherwise would have. Your description there reminds me it's time for me to invite Esther Chernak back on. She's uh, an epidemiologist and public health researcher at Drexel University. And just as you described, I felt so privileged um, whenever I felt like, and it's often, there's some elements of the science, the public health interface that I'm not getting. I'll bring Esther on, and we're having this, you know, as you say, it's sort of a one-on-one -on -one conversation, but then, of course, many other people are, are asking. They don't have to ask that question. I can ask that question, and um, she's giving that, that answer. It is, um, it's important, I think, that format, and I'm glad to hear you sort of talk about it in that way. I, I did want to um, follow up on, on one other sort of question that I, I and others have had about the region, and that's what it's been like, the sort of political aspect of it, um, you know, since, since last year. I think there's a lot of assumptions about um, maybe the politics of Appalachia, but I, I know they're more complicated than simply red and blue. And the deep political history of the region is also 
really interesting and and complicated. Um, I you know learning about the role of Appalachia in the Civil War, for example, this it's full of surprises. And so I I wonder how you know politics in last year's manifest itself in so many strange ways. The mask becomes some sort of a signal that becomes the bloody shirt, you know. And we've been fighting about things that I would have thought a year ago would have been impossible to fight about, and yet we find a way to do that in this democracy. Talk to me a little bit about the how the politics have played out, but then also how you approach that on the program, because you want to try to get a variety of viewpoints, I know. Uh, some of these issues have been tough to talk about this year. Definitely. Um, and I've tried to, I actually have an editor, I should mention, who, his name is Isaac Waite. He's a, the head of civil engineering at Marshall, and he... Uh, has I've, I've asked him and others who are, are friends of mine, you know, what kinds of questions would you like me to ask of, of people? And and he's asked me to kind of press people a little bit more who are politically connected. And, uh, you know, people like uh, like physicians and and uh, and, uh, you know, like the um, head head of various departments, I should say, um, on uh, uh, in our area about, you know, well, do you get upset about this? Or do you think people should be wearing masks more? Or, or do you think the, the government's been doing enough here? And it's very difficult to press them on this because, of course, uh, especially in this area, it's not they're, they're not going to lose their job if they say something. That's not what it is. It's that people know each other on a personal uh, level, too. And, uh, you know, people know the governor, they know the mayors, they know the, um, you know, the city council people, they're, they're friends with them, they try and keep things collegial. So there isn't that same kind of speaking, at least from the West Virginia level, I can't speak for the other states, but here, it's very common for people to try and kind of keep things nice. You know, there's a lot of preparatory discussions when people meet up for political um, situations where people are talking about their family. It could take a long time before that happens. And I saw this a lot in Mexico too. But for example, and I've seen it in Cuba, but in El Salvador, people get straight to business. It's all, it's there. There's a reason why in El Salvador, um, they're actually referred to as the Swiss of Central America, because their work ethic is is very is very much on time. You know, things are scheduled at a certain time. And we're going to get this done before we have fun time. But in West Virginia, there's professionalism that is paramount, of course. But it's also important to kind of for everybody to uh, to at least uh, smooth the edges over. You know, we're not going to raise voices. We're not going to criticize people personally as much as we maybe should. Um, you know, I always think of like uh, Jocko Willink, um, the Navy SEAL who, uh, who has written a couple of books. You know, he talks about how if you just say that uh, everything's great when you're evaluating somebody, then nothing's going to improve. And mm -hmm. but you people need to have a culture of of kind of transparency where you can say, well, this is a problem and, and, and we should call each other out on it. But that's really hard to do in um, in my experience, at least in West Virginia. And so um, I think that's been problematic on the show, too. I've, I've almost had to, you know, kind of come at it from different angles too. Uh, like, say, you know, well, um, you know, what do you say when people say this to you as opposed mm -hmm. to being very direct? I'm almost just trying to give them a forum. And in a mm -hmm. way, I'd like to actually one of my dreams would be to interview somebody who doesn't believe in masks, who doesn't actually uh, agree that the coronavirus is very dangerous, uh, who um, who doesn't believe in vaccines, uh, something like that, just to give them a chance to be heard. You know, because I think people um, should be able to judge based on the merits of it. it's almost like uh, Archie Bunker. 
You know, mm-hmm. Archie Bunker was beloved by a lot of Americans, but he was also really showing what that mentality really means, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of hoping people will be willing to talk on the air so that they can almost see to themselves, oh, wait a minute, maybe I didn't sound as logical as I thought I, I, mm-hmm. I did, you know? Um, as opposed to me trying to control what, you know, mm-hmm. or, or scrutinize them on the air. I want to give them uh, the ability to air it out. It's like in my class too. I've had students who've worn Trump masks uh, or, uh, or hats to, to class and people are offended by it. I say, well, that's his freedom of speech. He's a college student. He's trying to find his way in the world. I don't agree with him, but I'm not going to limit his speech unless he's being hateful. Right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but a lot of people, I think, feel like they, they can't express themselves. I think it's important to air it out so that they can, you know, but receive honest feedback too. Thank you for sharing that, that honesty. And I, and I've struggled with that a little bit too. Um, this is a, a podcast. You're doing a podcast. I'm, I'm not MSNBC or the wall street journal. Um, so I guess I don't have to worry about this so much, but I do worry about it because you do want to capture the, the breadth of the conversation that's out there. You are creating a, a historical archive of this time. I know that's part of what you're, you're up to with this, this podcast. As historians, we, we're making a body of sources right now that we might refer back to in the future or we hope others will. So you wanna capture that breadth and scope. At the same time, if you give a platform in the middle of a pandemic to someone who believes earnestly in that public health measures are part of a global conspiracy. Yeah. That's you I want to capture that viewpoint, but I don't want that to somehow ripple out there and impact the way that, to keep someone from wearing a mask. I mean, I think that's a real conundrum with this kind of work that that you and I are doing. Um, we don't have a fairness doctrine that weighs down on us. Some news organizations still take the fairness doctrine Seriously, but like you, I have wanted to have more conservative voices on COVID calls, but I struggle a little bit with this problem because I, I wouldn't want to then foster a conversation that would spread um, bad public health information. So, Boy, that's a great point. Yeah. I think in that situation, I I, I might just throw the question out there like uh, Peter Bogosian um, says in uh, in his book, uh, A Manual for Creating Atheists. Uh, you know, he says, you just kind of throw the question back. OK, well, uh, what kind of evidence would you need to change your mind? Because that's like the most I think it's a disarming question uh, to say, uh, you know, if somebody were to say that it's a conspiracy, I say, well, let's just look at it from this angle. Would you uh, is there any kind of evidence that would change your mind? And then to see what they have to say, because that might help to counter uh, their perspective, at least in the minds of people who are listening to it. Reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Chris White today, and we're talking right now uh, about his podcast, uh, which he's been working on since the beginning of the year, COVID in Appalachia, with with Chris White. And um, I really enjoyed listening through the episodes that I did, and I want to keep up with it um, as you're going forward. I was just listening last night um, to one of your more recent episodes, uh, number 31, which you did this week with musician Charlie Bowen, 
of a band called the 1937 Flood. And any band that's got a flood referenced in the title is my kind of band. I got to say that first of all. And then, um, and they've done the, uh, this band has done the, um, the music that you use at the opening of your, of your podcast. It's a great episode. I w- wish people would check it out and listen to it. Talk a little bit about um, that episode and also engaging culture in, we were talking about sort of the culture of Appalachia, engaging culture yeah. on the podcast. What that, what's that like? Yeah, the uh, I, I really wanted to get a song that could capture Appalachia somehow, and I uh, we went through a CD of theirs. I think I mentioned this in the, in the program too. Me and my my boys went through a CD of theirs, and uh, and the boys liked the first song because it was very upbeat, and they thought, okay, this is you know lots of violins, and it was very Appalachia sounding to them. But then the next one, they were like, oh, it's nice, but it's kind of somber. And I thought, yeah, but we don't want something that's upbeat for this. But at the same time. If we're using music, then aren't we kind of encouraging people to think about something that's positive? Because music is, uh, it, it evokes uh, something cultural. It's creative, which is a positive thing. And so uh, so we chose that one. And uh, the first time, actually, I decided to do something cultural was when I interviewed uh, Sasa Wilkes uh, a couple months ago. And she had painted a 100 what she called a hundred badass women, starting with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I just loved that episode interviewing her because she wouldn't have done it without COVID because she used to have this in-person studio and, uh, and workshop where she trained people, you know, took, gave them courses on how to do it. And that ended. And so, you know, she kind of retreated and then she found uh, a voice really because of COVID by painting these these uh, these paintings of these women and was so creative and it was a transparent process. She'd get recommendations from people and all that. And and she writes and, and paints and gardens in, a, in an artistic way. So I thought that was valid because it could maybe empower people to find their own cultural expression because we really need to find something to do during this time that's meaningful. I have family members who have uh, struggled with uh, depression as a result of of COVID, and um, you know because it's an isolating experience. You know, we haven't gone through this ever in our in our lives where we're in a semi shutdown mode for a year. I mean, at least with the Spanish flu, you know they shut down schools for a few weeks, um, and then uh, everybody got it and hundreds of thousands died and then they got it again later on, but it wasn't this complete shutdown for a long time. And so it's having an effect on people. And I thought that this is an important area to explore. Music as opposed to art is something that people can experience kind of in real time and, and, you know, and hundreds of thousands of people can be involved at the same time. And so that's really what uh, I think uh, the, uh, the interview with Charlie was about and, and he, his stories, uh, you know, when you hear the music from the flood, and that was a real event that happened in Huntington in 1937, actually, a mm-hmm. uh, tragic event. And uh, when you hear their music, then and then you listen to that interview with him, you see, wow, he's the last original surviving member of that band. And uh, the, the music has so much meaning to him and the band members too, because he knows all the stories behind them. He knows who wrote them, he knows who, knew who first played them and how they played them. And... Um, and then he's been he's kind of acquiring younger members of the band so that they can kind of carry on the legacy later on. It's uh, you know, I learned a lot of things that I didn't know about in that interview, too. And and of course, they're they're a local staple here, too. So people mm-hmm. you know could uh, get a chance to hear what it was like for them to rehearse uh, and during a time of restriction. And their music still sounds great. You know, it's not it's not yeah. uh 
uh, it's not on the CD itself. It's actually what happens during COVID. And they played a song at the end of the end of the episode. Yeah, which was yeah. really special. I mean, I, you know, I thought that was a great move that you you know to have them do that because that's. I mean, it's great to have that performance. It's a record of that performance in this time, that's which right. I think is really important to have. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, just to stay with this for a second, because um, you know, people do associate Appalachia with a particular musical style, um, or mountain music or bluegrass music. I mean, it's been a place of tremendous musical experimentation and ferment. And a lot of great musicians sort of started there and ended up in other cities and other parts of the United States and brought pieces of that. I didn't realize, for example, John Prine, who died last year, he had roots in that region and, and would make family trips to Appalachia. And so part of the Prine, which you wouldn't necessarily associate Prine with that music, but it's in there. Yeah. Right? I got and, a chance to see him. Yeah. A few years ago, actually here in Huntington. Uh, really? Was great. And he was barefoot on the stage the whole time. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about comfort. <laughs> yeah. Um, he just talks. Yeah. yeah. It's anyway. Yeah. But it, and a great storyteller and that's part of it too. And I, and I, I raised this because, you know, I think about, um, you know, where I spent a lot of time living in central Texas or, um, in new Orleans, these are, are parts of the country where if you wanted to know about the history of disaster in those places and they could, about disaster events or just about poverty and hard times, you would go to the music first. Hmm. It would be one of the first sources that you would consult, not only to understand, you know, to think about the content of the music, what's in the lyrics, how the music is arranged, but also how many pieces would be in the band. What kind of instruments did they have access to? Um, and the racial composition of the band, these very many things that tell us a lot about the pressures on a place in a given time. And so I, I guess just to draw you out a little bit more about what you, you think about art right now and how COVID might manifest itself in the art of Appalachia, the music of Appalachia going, going forward. I know it's too early to say, but yeah. I, I, no, I, I do think this pandemic is going to be visible and listenable in the art and the music that's being made right now. Yeah, I agree. Well, like uh, speaking of Prine, um, he has this, this, the song that sticks with me the most is Sam Stone. And he has this line, it says, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. And that line is something that speaks to the epidemic of the diseases of despair from our region, but all other parts of the world where people suffer from economic hardship and uh, environmental uh, tragedies, including disasters. And people turn to destructive behaviors oftentimes to deal with this and we blame them for it. And we don't understand that there are these environmental and technological causes to it, political and cultural causes to it, right? These things don't just happen um, entirely naturally. Uh, and so I think that I can imagine something like that in the future. A future John Prine will be able to capture, not, you know, as opposed to the drug epidemic that he's talking about, will be able to capture the COVID epidemic with something that would only apply to COVID, to this COVID year that we've experienced. Um, there's, there's no other thing that he's talking about, right? Except heroin um, with, the, with the hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. And I think there's, I, I look forward to somebody who comes up with that. And I bet it would be somebody who just is 
you know, sitting in isolation. Well, there's this one cultural expression that I saw a few months ago, actually, before school began. I think it was in August when my 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 family was debating whether or not we were going to let the kids go back to anything in person. And there was this great little three or two minute video where this young uh, teenager, a 14 or 15 year old, took snapshots of uh, screenshots of themselves logging on to school throughout the second half of the spring semester. You might have seen it. And it's just the person, the kids just getting on there and just doing their homework totally alone. They're looking at pictures of them and their friends on, on, the, on the wall, right? And I'm just thinking, God, that, that was their childhood, my childhood I had. And that cultural expression that that kid captured was just unbelievable. And then they fast forward, you know, just dozens and dozens and dozens of times where the kid is just sitting in front of a screen by him or herself. And, uh, and that hit me really hard. I'm sure a lot of other people, it hit them. So, um, so I think there's already some type of a cultural expression that's unique to that because that couldn't have happened any other time. You were referring earlier to the deeper history of the connection uh, between disease and drugs in the region in Appalachia. And um, I think that's an important prehistory to bring to bear um, to the dual disasters of the pandemic and opioid addiction. I wonder what you see going forward. And again, you know, for historians, it's sometimes considered malpractice to tell the future. So I don't want you to do that. But I am curious because there are, even right now this week in, in Congress, I think it's on the president's desk, pretty strong policy interventions, the likes of which we haven't seen in a long time in the United States, and they will have an impact on that region in terms of all kinds of health support. Do you think this is potentially, this disaster is an inflection point to bend the curve on the opioid crisis as well? Maybe. Uh, I think the, to be honest, I think the, uh, it's been trending in the right direction or a better direction for a while, because once the fatal overdoses started to just skyrocket, we had a Marshall history uh, freshman who died in 2007 of an opioid overdose, and uh, that woke a lot of people up here. Um, it's been moving more towards treatment, but the problem is it's also, uh, there's a lot of incarceration too. And I'm actually not the biggest fan of treatment as a method. I'm more about um, the prevention, which is really more in line with uh, a lot of money on education and after school programs, but especially the economy. So without a complete, this is, this is how I see it. And I think you could relate if we were thinking about something like Katrina, right? We can't just, uh, we don't, we, the, the city itself being built the way it was, where it was, right? And the dikes uh, as well. I mean, all of that had to be different in order to avoid something like Katrina. I, I'm sure you could speak to it better than I can, but that's what has to happen here. There has to be a complete remaking of our economic situation because we're just hemorrhaging people and and people are not being retrained and people don't respect our brand here either. They don't want to invest in our region because we our brand has been tarnished and, uh, you know, in part by ourselves, but also by uh, by the corporations and, and also 
from honestly from depictions like uh, like, like he'll be Billy Elegy, which honestly, it's an accurate depiction of his family life. But then and I don't think he was intending to be to for it to be a negative portrayal of Appalachia. But outsiders look at it and they go, well, why would I want to invest there? Why would I want my kids to move there for a job? And um, but if you look closely, there's some beautiful stuff about that, about the culture here. So, um, yeah, I think that it's it's so much more structural than uh, than any government can uh, give us credit for. It has the culture here has to change tremendously in order to invite more businesses. But the um, but that's just such a, a, a big, almost insurmountable uh, thing for the short term, at least. Um, I think the reliance on on public health is uh, is much more important than on medicine, for example. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so the treatment model is really more about medicine and therapy, which does work. But that works for hundreds of people every year in our city. For example, we have thousands, you know, it's orders of magnitude. The problem is orders of magnitude bigger. And there are babies that were born today in this state who will end up dead in the next couple of decades or a few decades because of drugs and they didn't do anything wrong. And there are babies that were born today in our region that will be arrested for using a drug that their great grandparents used to treat influenza. And, and that's, that's what seems like such a tragedy to me is that people are being treated as, as if they're villains for using a molecule, uh, an opioid, for example, that was really mass marketed to people, especially to, to, to treat industrial accidents and, and, um, and, infectious diseases. This is a, a strong invocation also, I think, to really correcting the way we talk about disaster, because at some point, um, in fact, I've already started to hear some of this, the, the idea that the pandemic is ending. Um, oh, yeah. And it's by some measures, I think, sure. But, you know, the structural things that you're talking about, which have predisposed people in the region um, I've also given them coping tools. I mean, you can't see these disasters outside of the structures that are in place. And so when the pandemic is over in Appalachia, it will be ongoing in other, in other ways. Do you intend to keep the podcast going to tell some of those sort of longer COVID stories? Or is this a, what's your timeline on the, on the project? Yeah. So, uh, and actually, yeah, you're, um, probably one of a handful of people who've asked me about that, which is encouraging to me because um, I hadn't even thought about that when I started it. But I think what I'd like to do is address this kind of paradox that we have in Appalachia, which is, you know, we want to keep the beautiful. We want to keep the family and the friends and the natural beauty that uh, that people are drawn to culturally and, and physically. They want to come here for that. But we also have to deal with this bad side, which is really, that's why I started this. We had the highest vaccination rates because of our traditional values here. That It was the personalism that were everybody mobilized together. The, the governor was on board to the National Guard. They distributed to hundreds of different pharmacies and just started in, you know, injecting, getting them into arms. And that was something that they weren't doing in California, for example. But, uh, but then on the other hand, we have these really high rates of infection, which is associated with the comorbidities, but also because a lot of people for religious reasons, or maybe because of their skeptical of the government, and there's reasons for that um, in, uh, in variety of groups in the country, um, or they're skeptical of doctors, then, uh, then they didn't trust what they were being told. And uh, to kind of 
So what I'd like to do is continue that as looking at the, the kind of the paradox of Appalachia, the good and the bad, so to speak. And if I could pursue that a little bit, you know, there's this great book on African-American um, uh, uh, hesitancy towards uh, towards medicine because of all the abuses that have been done. I mean, Tuskegee is just one of a hundred examples, right, throughout our history. And uh, and it occurred to me when I was reading that, that there's actually a reason for poor people in general and people in, in rural areas in general to be skeptical too. And it goes back to the drug epidemic. Here, people know that most of the people who got addicted to drugs were first prescribed that drug by a doctor, or they got it from somebody who was prescribed it by a doctor. So there's a lot of skepticism of the knowledge of doctors in this area as a result of that. And so the doctors are now telling me that I should uh, take this medicine to treat this COVID, or I should take these measures to prevent it. Why should I trust them? I trusted, my son trusted them when they got a prescription for OxyContin because they broke their leg playing basketball. So what am I supposed to believe now? Just a reminder that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday live at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, starting in the last couple of weeks and going forward, you'll also be able to catch COVID calls uh, occasionally at 5 p.m. Korea time. And we'll have another one of those discussions coming up next week. I want to thank my guest today, Chris White. It's been a really wide ranging and fascinating conversation and congratulations on your podcast, COVID in Appalachia with Chris White podcast. And I think you're up to 32 episodes now. Um, Is that right? 31, 32, right? So you've got good, good momentum and this discussion, just, I mean, all the different ways that you're, the many lenses you're bringing to this are all powerful and, and um, useful ones. And I wish you the best of luck with it. And thanks for your time today, Chris. Thanks so much, Scott. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.